Well, let me add my welcome. If I haven't met you before, my name is Rowan Kemp. I have the great, enormous privilege of leading the staff team that serves in partnership here with the students in the EU. And if you're joining with us tonight because you're a supporter or a graduate of the EU, we're so glad that you journeyed up to join us tonight. And we do hope and pray that under God, tonight is a great encouragement to you in your walk with Jesus. But we're so glad you could join us here tonight. I'm wondering whether you ever struggle with forgetfulness. Uh, maybe you're just an easily distracted person and so you tend to forget things. It's a pretty common occurrence in my household. Dad, where are my glasses? Where are my... So I can say it like this because none of my children are here. But um, <laughs> where are my socks? Where's my music? Where's my lunchbox? How would I know where you've put your lunchbox? How many places can you actually put a lunchbox and forget where you put it? Forgetfulness can be mildly amusing, it can be annoying, but of course it can also be tragic. If you know anything about Alzheimer's disease, you might know just how awful and tragic it is when people start to forget things. People can start to forget the good things with which they've been blessed, or even they can forget who they are. Well, I wonder if one of the reasons, and maybe it's a significant reason, why we lack joy as Christians is because we're forgetful. I wonder if sometimes we feel a sense of hopelessness. We feel weighed down by our own sin because, sort of like someone who's received a sort of a sharp knock to the head, we've got a case of short-term amnesia. We've forgotten what Jesus has achieved for us at the cross or maybe we've just never really understood what his death achieved for us. So tonight, if you like, is some theological anti-amnesia medicine. We're going to remind ourselves from the scriptures of the wonderfully great things that Jesus' death on the cross achieved for us. And we want that, do it, let that do its work in energising our Christian joy and our thankfulness. So, but first, there's an important truth we need to identify because this is actually the key to everything else that follows. It's this, who died on the cross? Well, that's pretty obvious, you say. Who gave this guy a microphone at the front? <laughs> if he doesn't know the answer to that, that's a problem, right? It's Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, the Messiah... God's eternal son become man. Everything that we talked about last night. That's who died on the cross. Well, that's not all, actually. Jesus wasn't the only one who died there on the cross because you died there too. If you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then according to the scriptures, you died there too with him. Have a look at Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 8. It's printed out there on your outline on page 28. Now, as I read this, I, I do have a bit of a game for you. I want you to count up, as I read it out, I want you to count up how many in Christ's or with Christ's Paul uses in these few sentences. And then we'll just see who gets it right at the end. Okay? Here you go. Paul says, Do you not know? that all of us who've been baptised into Christ Jesus 
were baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Okay. Just, I'll give you a moment to consult with the person next to you, just to make sure you got, or they got the right answer. Just check. Turn on the power. And that's going to start from sleeping? Yeah. Sure. I just didn't get turned on, and then it shut down. Not shut down, but just... Yes. Okay. We should be back on. Yep. Okay. Let's see if you got the answers right. Who said four? Who said four? Well done, because if you said there was only four, there was a bit of a problem. So that's good to know. Well, who said five? Six? Yeah, sorry. Getting close, but no. Seven. Seven's always a good option. It's a prime number. It's a really good guess at any time you're not sure. Seven. Yes, a few sevens. Okay, eight. Yeah, popular choice. Nine, ten, you're just making it up there. There's no way, there's no way there's ten. That's just not, anyway, the right, my my count anyway is eight. That's what I got. Well, why did you put your hand up? You're a bunch of, anyway. I, I make eight times, but what does it matter? Eight times in just a few verses, Paul emphasizes our union with Christ. In particular, he says, when we become a Christian, we are baptized into Jesus' death. He says, we're buried with Jesus. We're crucified with him, verse 6. We died with him, verse 7. When Jesus died on the cross, our old self, our pre-Christian self, was crucified there with him in the body of our representative. And as Paul says there, we're not just united to Jesus in his death, we're united to Jesus in his resurrection from the dead as well. What happened to him as our representative, because we're united to him, it happens to us as well. So John Calvin, the famous 16th century Protestant reformer, explains why this is so important and how it happens. The quote's there on your page. He says, we must now examine this question. How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? Not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. Then he says, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. 
That is, unless we're connected to Jesus in some real way, it doesn't matter what he's done at the cross because it won't apply to us. We need to be connected to him, united to him and with him in some way if we're to benefit from what he has achieved. So how do we get connected to Christ? Well, Calvin goes on to answer that. He says, It is through the secret energy of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. And when does God pour out his Holy Spirit on us? It's when we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. So if you look at the diagram at the bottom of your page, you can see there how we are united to Christ and his benefits at the cross. How? In the Spirit and through faith. Robert Letham summarised it like this, which is there on your page. He says, Union with Christ is, in fact, the foundation of all the blessings of salvation. Justification, sanctification, adoption and glorification are all received through our being united to Christ. So the fundamental truth we need to remember tonight is this. Here's the the, the key part of our theological anti-amnesia medicine. If you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, then you've been united to him in the Spirit. And so what has happened to him happens to you. And so your old self has died there on the cross with him. Now, why is that such good news? Well, it means that the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross, all that he achieved there, now applies to you. And that's the wonderful news that we're going to explore together the rest of this evening. So the benefits of Christ's death. I'm there on page 29. First of all, because we've been united with Jesus in his death, we are justified. There is now no condemnation for us before God. We'll just highlight three key passages from Romans. Uh, First, the important passage from Romans 3 that we looked at last night. From verse 22 there, Paul writes, For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, effective through faith. You can see that what Christ achieves for us in his death is justification. Now, to justify is a law court term. It means to declare someone to be in the right, to declare them to be righteous, to that, that they are okay. It's a declaration made by a judge because they're the one that gets to pass the verdict. Are you okay or not? And if the judge does declare you to be okay, then that settles the matter. The verdict is final. You can see there the little picture I've got on your page. If the judge says, you are okay. If you say so, then you are. Right? Well, what about in our case? What about in our case? When we appear before the judge... Well, because Jesus, our representative, has borne the penalty for our sin, God, the just judge, declares us justified. Not because we deserve it, we don't. Not because 
We've earned it. We haven't. Not because we can achieve it ourselves, because we can't. As it says there in verse 24, we're now justified by his grace, that is his, his unmerited favour, as a gift on the basis of what God himself has done in Jesus Christ. So as a consequence, we're freed from this penalty for our sins that we deserve. As Paul puts it in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because our sin, my sin, your sin, has already been condemned. Our sin has already been judged and punished in Jesus. See, God doesn't ignore your sin or mine. He judged it. He doesn't turn a blind eye to my sin or sweep them under the carpet. He condemns them as only a just God could. But by his mercy and grace, he's judged my sin there in Jesus' cross. So now there's no condemnation for anyone who is united to Jesus. So later in Romans 8, Paul enthuses about this. See there on your page. He says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. That is, if God says you're okay, you really are okay. Who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Now, of course, our sins still have consequences. So, you might have seen me walking around this week with my beanie. Apparently, it hides my very bushy eyebrows. (laughs) Andrew West, I'm no longer your number one fan. Look, sin has consequences. What can I say? Um, if I'll go back to what I was actually going to say. Um, if, if you steal my beanie, I mean, you would never have thought of such an idea, I know. And now, tragically, I've given you that idea and I'm going to live with the consequences. But if you steal my beanie, but then you repent, I will try to forgive you. And God, he certainly will. But you may still face the full force of Australian law for stealing a precious artefact. (laughs) You may still have to face earthly consequences for your sin. But in the divine court, because of the cross where we died with Christ and our penalty was paid, there is no one to condemn you anymore. God has justified you in Christ. There's no condemnation for any of your sins. Now, remembering this has a massive impact when we feel weighed down by our sin. Uh, Richard Lovelace puts it like this. It's there on your page. In his opinion, he says, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their life. Many, he says, have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and of the extent and guilt of their sin 
that consciously they see little need for justification, although below the surface of their lives they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Many others, he says, have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. You see what he's saying, right? People rely on how they live as a Christian to say, well, so I must be right with God, rather than relying on their justification in Christ. And he continues there. He says, few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. You are accepted, looking outward in faith, and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for our acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust, which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. See, when you realise that because of the cross, God accepts you, that despite your repeated failures, there is no condemnation for you, That is what energizes praise and thanksgiving to God. And it actually motivates you to live for him. Now the evil one loves to try to convince you that as a Christian, you're you're still not really right with God. Oh, you trust him. Oh, you follow him. But you're not really right with God, are you? Somehow you're not really okay with him. Well, let me tell you just straight. If you're in Christ... That is a lie. Don't believe it. Don't let yourself feel it. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones put it there on your page. A Christian is a man who can never be condemned. He can never come into a state of condemnation again. Because this is true of him, the Christian should never feel condemnation. He should never allow himself to feel it. The devil will try to make him feel it, but he must answer the devil. Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realise the truth of this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, friend, when you sin, don't let yourself get mired down in being sorry for yourself. And don't believe the evil one's lie that somehow now God is condemning of you. No! If you are in Christ Jesus by faith, there is no condemnation for you. I mean, think about it for a minute. Because you've sinned, right? Does that mean you've suddenly fallen out of Christ? Are you suddenly no longer united to him? Of course not. There's still no condemnation for you because you are still in Christ. Right, well, I guess that means I can do whatever I like. No. The way those who are in Christ respond to sin is by repentance. We turn away from it. We put put it to death in the power of the Holy Spirit within us because our old self has died with Christ 
and we praise him for his gracious gift of justification and the atoning blood of Christ, which has paid the penalty for all our sins. That brings us to the second, then, achievement of Jesus' cross. We're sanctified. We now have entry into God's presence. Uh, You'll remember from Monday morning when we looked at Genesis 1-3 to that one of the consequences of sin was that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, the place of God's presence. Jesus' death is the undoing of that banishment. It's the invitation and the permission to come back in. It provides the real cleansing from sin that enables us to enter God's presence without shame, without fear. As you know from our faculty times this week, this is a big theme of the book of Hebrews. So I'm not going to go through it in more detail tonight. You can see two of the key passages there on your outline from Hebrews 9 and 10. Uh, The point made in Hebrews 9 is about the cleansing that Jesus' death provides. So just as the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices were able to cleanse the body so they could enter the earthly tabernacle, how much more, says the writer of the Hebrews, does the blood of Jesus cleanse our conscience, which the Old Testament sacrifices could never do. And as a result, in the second passage there from Hebrews 10, we're told we can enter into the true presence of God, the heavenly dwelling place, because of Jesus' death. So whereas the high priest could only enter the earthly shadow of God's presence once a year, we all have confidence to enter God's presence because our hearts have been cleansed, our conscience purified by the blood that Jesus shed for us. Now, this is a very powerful truth. Our sin has not just been paid for, sin's stain on our soul has been washed away. Uh, We are those who we saw in Revelation 7 last night who've washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. It's like the Lord God, as he promised his people in Isaiah 1. He says, come now, he says, let let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That's what God does for us through the cross, our purification, our cleansing so that we can enter his presence with confidence, without shame or fear. Now, the reality is that every single one of us here tonight have done things of which we are ashamed. Things that we've kept secret, that very few people, if any, really know about. Now, I trust under God that you've repented of that, yes, Maybe it was even a long time ago. But you know when the shame still lingers? It might be something you did a long time ago over which you still feel shame, but someone you hurt, maybe? Something you said? Something you did? Maybe it was something you did just on the weekend before you came up here to Ancon. Something that you've already acknowledged as wrong before God and you've repented of it, But at the same time, you're really hoping no one finds out about it. We all have our secret shame. But of course, it's not secret from the Lord, is it? Everything we've done, 
is laid bare before him. And, and so we act like Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember after they ate from the tree and they discover they're naked? We try and hide from the Lord in our secret shame. We try to hide behind extra zeal in Christian activity. We try to hide behind being super strict on that same sin whenever we see it in someone else. It's like we think we can sort of distract God from our nakedness as we hide behind sort of pathetic fig leaves. Oh, Lord, did you hear that sound? Look over there. It looks like there's a reindeer coming around the tree. Well, we do our own version of that. Look, Lord, look how strict I am now on this sin when I see it on others around me. Look how keen I am now on Christian ministry. Look how much leadership I take on how much I serve in the EU or, or a church. Well, those things don't really take away our shame, do they? And frankly, God is not so pathetically distracted. In fact, God is quite determined. He's determined not to condemn you. He's determined to cleanse you, to purify you, to wash you clean, to permanently cover your nakedness and remove forever your shame over whatever it is that you've done in the past. That's what he's done for you in the death of Jesus. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience by the blood of Christ. Our robes have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And so now, there's no more reason for shame. There's no more reason to hide from God. We can freely come with confidence into God's presence without fear, without shame, because of the cross. So don't hang back. Enter God's presence with joy, with thankfulness, with confidence, because God has ended your days of hiding in shame through the cross. Let's move on to the third benefit of Jesus' death, still there on page 30. We've been reconciled to God. Now we enjoy peace with him. Uh, this is one of those truths I think that we so underestimate. Uh, we take reconciliation with God through Jesus as a bit of a given. But I think we fail to remember just how remarkable it is that as non-Jews, as I guess most of us are, it's quite remarkable that as non-Jews we have any place in the people of God because under the old covenant that was impossible. The only way you could become a full citizen, a full member of God's people and enjoy all of his blessings was by becoming a Jew, which meant changing what you ate, changing who you associated with, let alone that matter of circumcision, which we won't want to talk about, right? But then look at how Paul, a Jew by birth, talks about our radical reconciliation to God as Gentiles. It's from Ephesians 2, verse 11 and following. He says there in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He's abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, that is you Gentile Christians, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints, that is with the Jewish Christians, and also members of the household of God. Um, Do you know this wall up on the screen? This is the dividing wall uh, erected by the Israelis along the West Bank to keep out the Palestinians. On one side of the wall, God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel. On the other side, all the nations. Now, this wall is pretty substantial. It runs in various forms for nearly 500 kilometres, with another 200 kilometres still in planning. But actually, there is a much more significant wall that was used to delimit God's old covenant people. It was the old covenant law. The law was the wall. As Paul says there in verse 14 and 15, it was the law with its commands and ordinances that was this dividing wall separating out God's people, the Israelites, from everyone else, like you and me. But according to this passage, Jesus' death brought about a radical change in affairs in two ways. First... Jesus brought the era of the Old Testament law to an end. So since Jesus was the reality to which the Old Testament shadows pointed, including the law, once Jesus had died, the Old Testament law, as a body of law that was preparing the way for Jesus, it no longer applies. Christ has, we read verse 15, abolished it. The dividing wall has been torn down. So now instead of two warring parties... There's one new humanity in place of the two. You want to read more about that, about the law and Christ, have a look at Galatians 3 and Romans chapters 7, 8 and 10. is a good place to start. But the second thing that, God, that Jesus has done is take both these groups, Jews and Gentiles, and reconcile both of them to God together in his death. You see this there, verse 16 and 17. He's reconciled both groups in one body to God through the cross. And as a result, verse 17, he's proclaimed peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles, as well as to those who are near, the Jews. So by reconciling both groups together in one body to God, Jesus has also brought about reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, whereas before there was this massive division. So there's no separate track for the Jews, to, for reconciliation to God. It's through Jesus. And Gentiles are no longer excluded from that reconciliation. There's only one reconciliation available, but it's available to all. Christ in his cross. 
So what's the fruit of being reconciled to God? It's described in several ways in the passage, all of which are worth reflecting on, but we don't have time to. Verse 18, we both have access through Christ in the one spirit to the Father. Following on from this, verse 19, us Gentile believers are no longer strangers, cut off from God's people. We're now fellow citizens with God's people. But it's the third description that I want to highlight because it's because we've been reconciled to God, we have peace with him. This is a key point in what Paul's saying in these verses. Peace is mentioned four times. Let's think about what peace means for a moment. I mean, peace at a basic level means the cessation of hostility, I guess. Peace is exactly what's missing in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine. And because of our sin, we'd made ourselves God's enemies. We declared rebellion to God. And because he is a just God, we were facing his wrath for that rebellion. But now God's made it possible for that hostility to cease through sending his son Jesus so that through his death we might be reconciled to our Father. But peace in the Bible is a much bigger concept than just the ending of hostility. It comes from the Hebrew word shalom. It captures the idea of enjoying God and all of his blessings. That's what shalom's about. That's what peace is about. Enjoying God, all of his blessings. That includes safety and security from enemies. But it also means enjoying all of his other blessings as well. Being his people, in his presence, enjoying his provision, the fulfillment of all his promises. That's shalom. That's biblical peace. Once you realise that, you go, ah, what was lost in Genesis 3, which we saw on Monday morning, what was lost in Genesis 3 was peace, shalom. And the whole of the Bible story is the account of how God, through salvation history, is restoring shalom for his creatures. And that's what Christ does through his cross. He reconciles us to God so that there might be shalom, peace. But this peace, actually, is not just between us and God, and it's not just between Jew and Gentile. This peace that Christ has won is cosmic in scale. It encompasses the whole of creation. Have a look there, Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20, there on the bottom of your page. Through the Son, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. So we know from Genesis 3 that the very creation itself is under God's curse as a result of human sin. Romans 8 tells us the whole of creation has been subjected to frustration and is groaning like a woman about to give birth. And Hebrews talks about the very heavenly realms needing purification. It's the death of Jesus that secures the reconciliation of all things to God, whether on earth or in heaven. There is now the possibility of cosmic shalom through the blood of Jesus' cross. Now, 
We don't see that yet completed, do we? Just as we don't see ourselves completely delivered from the presence of sin in our own lives yet. The consummation of this shalom, the full experience of it, will only arrive when Jesus returns and brings with him the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. But the essential work of reconciliation has already been done. The essential work of reconciliation was achieved by Jesus at his cross and that's what secures hope for the entire cosmos. Well, the fourth achievement of Jesus' cross is that we've been redeemed. God has rescued us from our captivity and made us into his own people. Uh, Yesterday we saw that Jesus' death has purchased us for God. He's paid the ransom to redeem us from the power and penalty of sin. We talked about how that redemption was prefigured in God's redemption of his people out of slavery in the Exodus. And that Exodus language of redemption is reflected across the whole of the New Testament, actually, to explain what Jesus' death has achieved. Uh, So, for example, on your page there, Titus 2.14 says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Or even more simply there from 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So as we saw yesterday, because of the cross, we now belong to God. But that means something very particular. It means we are no longer under the power of the evil one. The Bible is very clear that outside of Christ, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5. This evil one, we're told, is the prince of this world. John chapter 12. And if anyone has not come to Christ in faith, then tragically they are still locked in slavery under his power. And he is not a good master. He wants your death, your destruction. But when Jesus came, he talked about what he was doing as binding up the strong man. Mark chapter 3. Jesus said he came in the power of the Spirit to release the captives. Luke 4. To free all those held in slavery to sin and death. Hebrews 2. And you see glimpses of this in some of the miracles Jesus performed, where he freed those who were oppressed by demonic spirits. But of course, the real moment of binding the strong man and winning release for the prisoners actually came at the moment where it seemed to everybody that the evil forces were winning. See, when you look at Jesus on the cross, surely that's his defeat, isn't it? Surely the cross is the moment when evil triumphs, when the good guy lost. But the testimony of the New Testament is that the cross is Jesus' moment of victory. It's his moment of triumph. In fact, the cross is the moment when he disarms the strong man, when he smashes the chains and sets us free. 
Have a look at how Paul describes it in that next passage on your outline, which should say Colossians 2 rather than Colossians 1. But when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it, talking about the cross. So at his cross, Jesus disarmed the spiritual forces of evil, the rulers and authorities, and he triumphed over them. He tied up the strong man. In fact, at the very moment where the Roman powers were trying to make a public example of Jesus by crucifying him, Jesus was actually at that moment and in that very act making a public example of the spiritual powers, of the spiritual authorities. He was showing their ultimate powerlessness. He was revealing to all their failure, their defeat. The cross is really the moment where we see God's triumph on display. We see his victory over the forces of darkness revealed to all. You're saying, well, how? I mean, maybe if you'd said in the resurrection he defeats all these powers, I get it, but at the cross he defeats the powers? At the cross he disarms the powers? How does that work? Well, Graham Cole has some help for us here in his excellent book on the atonement, God the Peacemaker. The key, he points out, is to realise that the power that the evil one has against us is his ability to accuse, to accuse us of sin. That's why he's actually called the accuser in Revelation 12. His weapon is the accusation that you haven't kept God's law, have you? You're guilty of sin, aren't you? But isn't that exactly what Jesus dealt dealt with for us when he died? So have a look at how Graham Cole puts it. The good news is that Christ's cross not only saves us, but additionally disarms those forces arraigned against us. The key to the disarmament is the forgiveness of sins on the basis of the cross. The powers and authorities are thus deprived of their power now that the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us is cancelled, taken away, nailed to the cross. These forces no longer have any grounds to accuse the Colossians and us who believe. In such accusation lay their power. Christ dying in our place robs them of their power. See, by ending the era of the Old Testament law and by taking upon himself the guilt and penalty of our sins, there is nothing left for the evil one with which he can accuse us. We're justified. Who is to condemn? We are purified, invited into the very presence of God. We are no longer his enemies. We are reconciled and enjoy peace with him. And so the evil one's power to accuse us has been removed. 
He's been completely disarmed and deprived of his power and so released in Christ from the evil one's power to, to accuse, we now belong to God. Now this redemption from the evil one and the power of sin will have very significant consequences for how we respond then to sin in our own life. But we're going to explore those consequences tomorrow night. For tonight, remember, remember your redemption through the cross. Remember that you have been rescued from the evil one and from the power of sin and death. There's no reason anymore for you to f- live in fear. In fact, the New Testament says, resist the devil and he will flee. He has no basis to accuse you anymore if you're in Christ Jesus. Well, the fifth and final benefit of Christ's death for us, the bottom of page 31, because of the cross, we are assured of a certain future. The fact that we've already been justified, sanctified, reconciled, redeemed by Jesus' death gives us absolute confidence that what will happen at the final judgment when Jesus returns. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God? That is, from the wrath of God at the final judgment. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Um, If I say to you, look, um, I'll give you a lift home at the end of Ancon. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So then I go and I borrow someone's car. I come and I pick up all your gear. I pack it into the car. I clear away all the discarded Macca's wrappers from the passenger seat. I open the door to let you in. I check you've done up your seatbelt. I start the car, drive out of Maru. We drive all the way towards your place. We get right to the, to the end of your street. And then suddenly you turn around to me and start freaking out and saying, you are going to go all the way to my place, aren't you? I'm, and you're not going to stop short so that I have to get out there you know, like on my own, are you? Maybe you won't get me all the way home. I'm just going to look at you and just say, I love you, you're an idiot. (laughs) I've got you all the way here. Of course I'm going to take you all the way home. I've done everything to get you this far. Of course I'm going to drive you the last 150 metres. If I'm trustworthy, which I hope I am, I'll see you all the way safely home. Well, that's something like what Paul's saying here. If while we were God's enemies, he reconciled us to himself such that we now have peace with him, how much more surely will he ensure that we're saved on that final day of judgment? If he's already declared us justified, okay with him, because of Jesus' blood, then there's no doubt about his verdict on that final day. You see, Jesus' cross in the past is our assurance in the present of our salvation in the future. Jesus' death in the past is our assurance in the present 
of our salvation in the future. So if you've come to Christ in faith, don't get anxious about what might happen on that final day of judgment. There's no need to freak out about that day when each of us will come before Jesus as our judge because the judge himself has been judged for you. His cross in the past is your assurance in the present of your salvation in the future as you hold onto him by faith. So these are the benefits of Christ's cross. Our justification, our sanctification, our redemption, our reconciliation and our assurance. Well, how do we pull all of this together as we come to the end? Well, the way that God pulls it together, summarises it in the Bible, I think is with a particular phrase. It's a phrase that's loaded to the max with meaning. And here it is, right? Through Jesus' cross, we have, here it is, the forgiveness of sins. Now, when you and I hear the phrase forgiveness of sins, we don't think that's a really big deal. I mean, for us it just means forgiveness of sins. I mean, you do something wrong, hopefully they forgive you. You sin against God, then because of the cross and you've come to him in repentance and faith, he forgives you. It's great, yeah, sure, but where's the loaded to the max? Where's the extra layers of meaning here? Well, in the scriptures, forgiveness of sins doesn't mean just forgiveness of sins. When God forgives people's sins, that is the key into entering into the enjoyment of all of God's promised blessings. This was true under the old covenant. You can see there on your page a bit from Micah 7. The context in Micah 7 is important. It's a prayer and a prophecy that the Lord would rescue his people out of exile. Why are they in exile? Well, the answer in Micah 6 and 7 is because of their sin. But this is a prophecy that the Lord will bring them back to the promised land, just like he did when he brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And look how this day is described there. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers the days of old. This is about returning to the land, right? How is it being described? It's described as fulfilling God's covenant promises to Jacob, to Abraham. And when will it happen? It'll happen when... God casts all our sins into the depths of the sea when he forgives all our iniquities. See, forgiveness of sins is the moment. It's the key to entering into the enjoyment of all of God's promised covenant blessings. The same is true when it comes to the promise of the new covenant. As you can see there on your page from Jeremiah 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For I will forgive their iniquity 
and remember their sin no more. So entering into the new covenant blessings comes when God forgives our sin. Now this connection then really loads up the significance of what's going on when God announces that he's going to forgive people's sins. So if you look at Jesus' words to his disciples at the end of Luke 24, you start to realise, oh, something really big is going on here. Have a look there at Luke 24, 45 to 47. Then Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer. That's his death, right? That's phase one of God's program. And to rise from the dead on the third day. That's phase two. And that, and here's phase three, repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. It's not just that God's going to forgive people their sins. No, forgiveness of sins means a lot more than that. It, it means that now is the time that God will fulfill all of his covenant promises. The covenant promises are going to, that are going to see God's good intentions for his creation fulfilled. And so if forgiveness of sins is now on offer to all, that means that entry into all of God's covenant promises is available to all. And that's why when you read the New Testament, it's often hard to separate out all these different benefits of the cross that we've been looking at. I don't know if you've noticed when we've been looking at these passages, I'll, be, I'll point to a passage about justification, but it's got justification there, but also redemption, or it's also got reconciliation there. Or I go to a passage on reconciliation that's talking about forgiveness of sins and other things. Why are they always so intertwined? Why couldn't they just be a lot more like we are at Ancon? Very ordered. Well, this is why. If you look carefully, you can see that forgiveness of sins is actually often tied up with each of them. So you can see there in the diagram at the bottom of page 32. Why is it like this? Because forgiveness of sins is a shorthand way of capturing God making everything right. When sins are forgiven, we have entry into the enjoyment of all of God's covenant promised blessings. That's what Jesus won for us in the cross. That was his achievement for us. No condemnation. No more shame. Entry into God's presence. Peace with him. Redemption from the evil one's power. No more fear. A certain future. That's the achievement of the cross. Praise God for what he has done for us. Let's not forget it. I'm going to leave you with a moment to reflect, maybe jot down a few things you'd like to respond with, and then I'll close in prayer. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. 
when our poor lisping, stammering tongues lie silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, we'll sing your power to save. Heavenly Father, we praise you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus, for all that you have achieved for us by your grace and mercy. Please write these truths deep into our hearts and minds that we might praise you for them tonight and this week and all the days you give us on this earth and then strengthen us by your spirit to praise you for the endless ages for all that you have achieved for us in your son's death. Accept our praise and our thanks for all eternity. Amen.